We'll be reading from Luke 4 this morning, and we're continuing as we look at this artwork around us and the conversation around that, a sense of liberty and justice, right, that is proclaimed through Christ. You know, sometimes when I read scripture, I like to put myself in the audience, put myself in the scene. So if that helps you today, close your eyes and imagine yourself as being a member of that synagogue as we read the words of Christ. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's so good to be together this morning. And we have a special morning uh, this morning because our founding pastor and senior pastor, Tom Nelson, is with us. Tom, we're so grateful to have you here this morning. And before Tom, Tom comes on up here, I would like to pray for the next 30 minutes and for you and for Tom, for us, uh, for this sermon. But after I pray, I would love for the downtown campus to give them a huge downtown welcome. So that'd be great. Okay. Um, yep. Just wait a moment. I'm going to pray and then you can do that. All right. Sorry if that wasn't clear. It'll happen. All right. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we quiet our hearts before you. We thank you for your word, that it isn't just black words on white pages, Lord, but it's the bread of life, it's the word of life. Pray for Tom, Lord, guide him and direct him. We ask for a super abundance of your Holy Spirit in this place. Give Tom clarity of thought and concision of speech to proclaim your word for your glory and for our good. Lord, we love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Good morning. It is great to be with you, and uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, it's wonderful to be a part of our uh, downtown family today. Uh, some of you I have known for a long time. Uh, some are newer to me, and again, I'm Tom, and I'm so delighted you're part of the broader Christ Community family. We're a much larger family now. Uh, but it's such a delight to be with you. And also kids, loved uh, having the kids in our service, so thank you so much. Um, and you have an awesome uh, downtown staff team, so let's give them a hand, okay? I'll list them up, but <laughs> Gabe, Gabe texted me this morning, he's sick. So uh, it's not because he's sick of my sermon, I don't think, but it's like he's sick. So let's pray for, for Gabe. But it's a great team you have, it's a great opportunity, and uh, we are really excited. When I stand here, uh, I hope you'll let me just have a moment before my sermon. I, I am a bit overwhelmed in many ways wherever I go. Um, but I can't help uh, this morning but think of uh, 30 years ago uh, when a handful of very average people like you and me uh, gathered in an uh, air-conditioned less basement of an office building for our first gathering. Uh, God has been so faithful to Christ's community uh, and I'm sure to all of our lives. So it is pretty overwhelming. And when we began... 
Uh, we had such a heart for the entire city. I remember meeting with the Mid-America Regional Council when I first came here. Uh, and 30 years ago, this city was very different. And we are on the rise. And what a joy to see God at work here. And the Christ Communities is quiet catalyst in so many ways across our city. Uh, from the very beginning, just want you to, a couple things I want you to grasp, it's really important to me, um, is that Christ Community has never been about a personality or a charismatic visionary. Um, it's been about the flourishing uh, of, a, of a wonderful culture uh, and a compelling mission. And everywhere I go, I talk uh, with our campuses about our mission. We are mission-centric, and that is to be a caring family, of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ, and we are passionate about this mission. Uh, and now we are in multiple locations, as you know, and uh, uh, we are seeing in ways we never imagined 30 years ago uh, of how God has taken a handful of pioneers and built them. Uh, the influence we're not only having in our city, but through Made to Flourish, you realize that we are in 28 cities, 3,000 pastors, and just four years, uh, the national influence God is giving Christ community in so many ways, and so we're all humbled by that. And we seek to be a faithful presence in our entire city, uh, and what a delight to be here. We are seeing... Uh, lives transform. Uh, I run into people uh, at the grocery store, different places where I am in the city, and they say, I'm a part of the Lytha campus, or I'm a part of the Shawnee campus, and it's really thrilling for me uh, to be a part of that. And uh, how exciting it is for us here. Our whole entire family is really jazzed about the new facility, not only at Shawnee, but uh, downtown. So it's going to be amazing, and uh, we're excited to cheer uh, you guys on. So we are really fired up about that. So God's been very faithful to us. I know I'm supposed to give a sermon, but um, I just wanted to say, you know, we, we are so delighted that you're a part of the Christ Community family, whether you've been here many, many years, whether you were born here, right, Zach? <laughs> um, but also, it's a great, great delight for me to be here. So God, we serve as really faithful, amen? Uh, and uh, what a joy to be a part of, of this uh, church family. I believe as we stay yoked to Jesus, uh, stay focused on him, and stay uh, embedded in his holy word that the most fruitful days of Christ Community are ahead of us. I believe that with all my heart. So these are the good old days, okay? So let's pray, and I guess I have a sermon. I'm part of the teaching team, and uh, we have a, a wonderful delight to continue this series this morning. So let's pray, okay? So Father, we are grateful beyond belief uh, for Christ and for your church. Uh, thank you, Lord, for each person here this morning. Uh, we ask that you take these little loaves and fishes, however humble they are, and multiply them, feed our hungry souls, uh, and may uh, the fragrance of Christ fill this place. Uh, may you be exalted. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like an elementary school band concert. You ever been to one of those? Um, as parents, one of my most enduring moments was enduring elementary band with my kids. And uh, when I think of elementary band concerts, I think of first sermons. Because first sermons are a lot like elementary band concerts. They are often awkward. <laughs> and sometimes they are painful to listen to. Uh, and I still remember my first sermon. Uh, uh, the very first time we gathered 30 years ago, um, I did give a sermon. That was my first public sermon. And let me just say it was anything but polished, and it certainly wasn't impressive. And I remember standing, you know, in front of a handful of people supposed to do this sermon thing. Never done one before. I had sweaty palms for sure. Uh, and I remember a uh, lot of thoughts that went through my mind. Let me share a couple of them. I remember feeling very nervous about my first sermon. But transparently, my anxiety was less about giving the sermon than it was about what would people's response to the sermon be. And as I 
gave my sermon that first morning. I remember it was out of the book of Nehemiah. I found myself, you ever found myself thinking like, are they going to like this sermon? But the most fearful thought for me, now as a, as a pioneer church planter, right, we had no money, no buildings, nothing. We just kind of dropped in here. The question that I found myself constantly feeling, like the shadow, was this question. Would people come back next Sunday? That was the biggest question in my heart. And sermons are really strange things, aren't they? They're strange to give, and sometimes they're also strange to listen to. We've uh, had a lot of opportunity, I'm sure, if you've been a part of church, to uh, listen to sermons. But we all respond to sermons in different ways, right? And maybe you're already responding. If I could look into your mind and heart, you'd be thinking, hmm, 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 what is this all about? But have you ever asked yourself this question? This is the question that captured our whole teaching team this week. And it's a really good question. Have you ever wondered what Jesus' first sermon was like? You ever thought about that? I mean, any significant way. Now, let's recall uh, the gospel writer Luke gives us at least his first recorded sermon, Jesus' first recorded sermon. And uh, if you go back to the gospel of Luke, you know that Jesus was a prodigy. Luke tells us that Jesus was like Mozart of his day. I mean, at age 12, can you imagine this? He stunned and amazed the most brilliant minds of his day. At age 12. Not only for his intellectual prowess, but for his rhetorical brilliance. This is Jesus. So can you imagine Jesus at 30 years of age? What would his sermon been like? Well, I want to suggest to you that you may think it was the most brilliant sermon, and maybe it was. But what was the response to Jesus' sermon? It may shock you. It may surprise you. And the text we're going to look at this morning tells us Jesus' first sermon nearly killed him. Now, my first sermon, I'm not sure they were ready to kill me. I'm not sure they're ready to join. But imagine your first sermon people hating it so much they wanted to kill you. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the gospel writer Luke. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the New Testament. And we are entering into chapter 4. Now, as a church family across our campuses, we are trekking through this invigorating terrain of Luke's brilliant first century masterpiece. It is the finest Greek in the New Testament. It is a brilliant literary classic. And we've entitled this message series, Rediscovering Jesus. And I want to suggest to you, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you may be in a spirit, a spirit of doubt, you may have been in church all your life, wherever you are, I think it's fair to say all of us gather caricatures and distortions of the who, who Jesus really is as we walk through life. So all of us, I want to suggest, would benefit by getting a clear view of who Jesus really is. So in our text this morning, and I hope you brought a Bible, if not, listen carefully, I'll frame where we're going. Luke will artfully, first of all, and this is what he is as an artist, he arranges the retelling of Jesus' first sermon, at least the one he first records, in two contrasting literary scenes. And I want you to notice in the text that strong emotions punctuate the text. Don't miss that. And hovering over the surface of Jesus' brilliant sermon are three crucial questions that Luke wants us as a reader to consider. This sets the terrain of our conversation this morning. The three questions are, what did Jesus say? 
who did Jesus say he really is, and what should be our response, okay? So first of all, I want you to notice in the first scene, we encounter what Jesus said. In other words, his sermon message. So here in verses 16 through 17, notice, or listen carefully, Luke sets the first literary scene. Remember, there are two contrasting scenes. And Jesus has begun, as we look back, his itinerant public ministry as a rabbi. He's left the carpentry shop, and he's doing his thing. Now, Jesus is not quite Jesus Christ superstar yet, but Luke tells us that Jesus' star is rising in northern Israel. He's catching people's attention. Remember, he already caught the whole nation's attention at age 12. But now it's bursting on the scene, and you might say his Twitter following is really rising. That's the picture. So Jesus returns to his small hometown. He's a small hometown boy. And you can imagine uh, what it was like for him. And he follows his pattern, notice, his pattern of his rule of life. The spiritual discipline of corporate worship was woven into the fabric of his childhood. And he arrives in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And Luke tells us, if you notice the text, that Jesus stands up to read the, the Torah scroll, or actually the Isaiah scroll. And he chooses, and this is very important to understand, of all Isaiah's scroll, and Isaiah is viewed as the prince of all prophets. He chooses one particular text. This is important because it becomes the focal point of his sermon. It is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And Luke records it very specifically, and do not miss it. Notice, I'll reread it again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what is Jesus, brilliant Rabbi Jesus, doing here? You'll notice what he's doing is that Jesus is intentionally aligning his sermon with Isaiah's sermon. He's bringing those two together, something that Isaiah foretold hundreds of years before he aligns with. In other words, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, peered down the corridor of time and saw a hopeful burst on the horizon. This hopeful burst was woven into the Old Testament fabric of the story. It was a person who would come, and in Hebrew vernacular, it was the Mashiach, the Messiah, a person who would come. So this anticipation constantly builds to the Old Testament. What is the Messiah coming? The Messiah, the Messiah, okay? And Jesus is connecting that longing with this moment. At the heart of amazingly good news is this person, the Messiah, who is going to come and take a Humpty Dumpty broken world and put it back aright. The Messiah is going to set everything right one day. This is the good news. And notice Isaiah and Jesus say it brings hope to the poor, freedom to the captives, and sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. Now, it's important to understand that Isaiah saw it in a stereo kind of lens. In other words, the good news had a spiritual component first and foremost. Because the Bible tells us that the greatest oppression or impoverishment is a spiritual one. But it is not just a spiritual reality. It is also a very physical, temporal, economic reality. And notice the crescendo is built, literally, in verse 19. Verse 19 is the center of the story. And notice, verse 19, the Messiah would come, and here's the language I want to use. It's a he would bring a comprehensive reset 
of the broken human experience and the entire broken world. Now notice verse 19, if you have your Bible open. He will use the language to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now for us in the 21st century, that is a bit distant in terms of understanding what he's saying. But to the first century readers, they just absolutely went, wow. Why? Because this phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, was impregnated with meaning and encompassing hope around the Messiah. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment. We're not very familiar with a language that is uh, understood here, and it's the language out of a book in the Old Testament. Uh, the language of the year of the Lord's favor is a word in English called jubilee. Now, most of us don't usually hear that word, but it's a rich word, and it's really important. And this is what Jesus and Isaiah are speaking about. Uh, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, if you've ever been there, it's one of those things, if you do a Bible reading for the year, you go Genesis, Exodus, and then you stop, right? It's, it's where you hit the wall, right, as a Bible reader. So just that's happened to me too. But Leviticus is really an important book because it gives practical guidelines for a faith community living under God's covenant rule. And at the heart of this is this idea in Leviticus 25 of this idea of jubilee. And this is what Jesus is talking about. What was Jubilee? Jubilee in the Old Testament was, let's just use the word, a fundamental economic reset in the world. It involved employment relationships that changed, debts that were canceled. God's covenant people enacted Jubilee. But the question for most scholars is we don't really know if they ever actually celebrated it. But it was God's design for his covenant people to experience jubilee, right? So property was returned to families. Debts were uh, forgiven. So it was a deep economic idea. Now, some of you probably know that I have worked in this area and written in this area. Uh, one of my great joys in life now as a guy with a little gray hair is I often endorse books. Uh, and uh, one of the books that I, I uh, wrote not too long ago was The Intersection of Faith and Economics, because I work in this area on bringing faith and modern economic theory together. It's part of who I am and what I do. So over holiday vacation, I received this manuscript to consider endorsing. I'm still not sure I'm going to endorse it, but here's the name of it. You ready for this one? Uh, it's coming out by wonderful economist, The Coming Money Crash. And the subtitle, at least the working subtitle, is a Reconstruction Blueprint. Now, why do I mention this? Because when you read through this manuscript in some of the brightest minds of our time, they are saying that because of broader macroeconomic pressures in our global economy, there is going to be a coming global economic reset. Okay, that's the word that is used by economists. Now, I don't know if their prognostications are right. I mean, I don't know. I'm not chicken little or whatever. But the comprehensive idea of this manuscript, of a global reset of the whole societal order that has profound economic implications, is the kind of idea of the Jubilee, way back in the Old Testament, where the structural order of things are reset in a world that is upside down. Okay, does that make sense? This is what Isaiah and Jesus are talking about. So I want to use the language of the Great Reset. Okay, that's a way of sort of translating what Jesus is saying here. And the Bible talks about the ultimate jubilee, not in jubilee language. And as you read the New Testament, you'll see it is this phrase that is so common. You ready? It is the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of God. Now, I want us to think of that as the great reset. And the biblical storyline has great continuity and expectation that this kingdom would come, this great reset in the world with a great king who would usher in this glorious reign and a reign that the world would eventually be set right. So the ultimate jubilee would be centered in the Messiah. Okay? So in the 21st century, we often, you know, don't use language like kings and kingdoms, do we? We think of democracy and other kinds of things, but the language of the first century is kingdom and kings. Now, we have a little bit of a taste of that, right? A little taste of jubilee, 50 years since we won the Silver Bowl, right? And we have the chief's kingdom, right? I like that. Um, and I'm cheering them on, just so you know. But seldom do we have the language of jubilee, which I think is interesting. Let's, let's have a reset, right? Let's have the, the chiefs win. Um, but the idea here is the kingdom, right? The kingdom. What is this kingdom language? And it's really important, y'all, for us to understand what this is. Okay? So I want, if you'll just bear with me, I want to unpack it. Because if we miss this, we miss so much of what the gospel of Jesus preached. Okay, still with me? Okay, so let's press into this. This is really, really important. Now notice, Luke will highlight, if you have your Bible, he will build to verse 23. This is the structure of 43, sorry. In 43, everywhere Jesus went, he had his stump speech. It's his primary sermonic theme, and it's the kingdom of God. Now notice in verse 43, let me quote it. He's, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So we understand that the gospel that Jesus taught and preached was a gospel of the kingdom. Now this is important for us to grasp because the idea of the kingdom of God is the reign of God. That's what it means. It's where God gets done what he wants to get done. It is a world where everything and everyone lovingly, willingly aligns with God's will, heart, and purpose. The 19th century Dutch minister and theologian, if you want to read a brilliant writer, his name is Abraham Kuyper. And Kuyper captured this well when he said this, there's not a square inch of the universe where Jesus does not look at it and say, this is mine, this belongs to me. This is the picture of the reset of the Jubilee year, of the kingdom of God that would come. And remember in our Lord's Prayer, all of us know the Lord's Prayer at some level, right? We say what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is very important. Because Jesus wants God's full kingdom to be aligned with ours and ours with his. So what is our kingdom? All of us as image bearers have a kingdom. The kingdom you have and I have as image bearers of the king is what we have responsibility for in our life. Right? The first kingdom all of us have, regardless of where we live or the money we have or the jobs we have, is our bodies. Our bodies are our main first kingdom. It is what we have say over. That's our kingdom. Also, it's what we do with our money, where we work, what our season of retirement looks like. This is our kingdom. So notice in chapter 4, in Jesus' first sermon, he proclaims the good news that the gospel of the kingdom, because now Jesus the king has come, has now arrived. Not in fullness, but it has already arrived. And when we hear the word gospel, many of us think first and foremost of the forgiveness of our personal sin. Okay? And that is important. That's foundational. Jesus goes to the cross for that reality. But Jesus' emphasis of the gospel of the kingdom is more than just our personal forgiveness, as crucial as that is. It is a much broader idea. The gospel Jesus taught was more than forgiveness of sins. It was a profound 
ushering in of all of reality being as he designed it to be. In other words, here's what I want you to hear. The gospel is not just about getting us to heaven. It is about getting heaven into us and into our world now. This is the gospel Jesus teaches. And notice there is individual forgiveness at the heart of the cross. But the cross and the crown go together. He is the king, the crucified and risen king, who's ushering in his kingdom in all of life. And the gospel, properly understood for the church, is it speaks into every nook and cranny of human existence and profoundly shapes it. Profoundly shapes it. It is, as Abraham Kuyper says, every square inch of your life and mine. So it is a world of the kingdom, and we will see this as we work through this book of Luke. It is a world of goodness, truth, and beauty that is now available to all, including, notice the emphasis of Isaiah and Jesus, those on the margins, those who are considered outsiders, those who are looked down upon in their society, those abused, those oppressed, those perceived as having less value by others are now welcomed in with everyone. This is the good news. The good news that Jesus preaches, the gospel, is good news for all people and all aspects of life. It is a comprehensive reset of the world and your life and mine. And of course, one of the tendencies is we want the good news without the good king, right? This kind of good news is not just another disillusioning utopian dream. When you look at human history, Human history is littered, and people are scarred, and nations are scarred based on human utopian dreams that are brought in by power or human might. This is not the kingdom of God. Misguided attempts of visionaries creating utopia are all over human history. And this is why MLK, we just celebrated his brilliance in his work, Martin Luther King Jr., this is why he was able to say in one of his most famous quotes, right, that the arc of justice, or the arc in the universe, bends the long way toward justice. Why? Because Martin Luther King Jr. understood that the king had come, and he was going to come in fullness, and a sovereign God was moving history for that arc of justice. It didn't mean we didn't have a human responsibility, but he had hope because a sovereign God who cared about every square inch of the universe was bringing in the gospel of the kingdom, and that arc over the long haul would bend to justice. This is what Jesus is saying. And notice what he says. He drops a bombshell in verse 21. This was a bombshell. He says, today, Isaiah's words are fulfilled in your hearing. So this leads us to our second question. It's not just what Jesus said. It's who does Jesus say he is is where this text goes. Or we may say, who does he think he is? Now notice Jesus says in the most compelling way, y'all, who Isaiah spoke of, that Messiah, I'm he. That English, but that's what he said. I'm he, me, it's me. I'm the Messianic king. And I'm ushering the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Everything that God has been promising all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 3 and before, this great reset, what Isaiah saw in his day, is now happening before your eyes. It has invaded this world, and I am the king. Now, I want you to notice how people responded to that. How did people respond to his sermon? Let's take a closer look. 
This is where the literary lens moves next, verses 23 through 29. What you see here is shock and awe. And you'll notice as you read it, there is this, uh, the original language is hard to interpret. There is a sense of a kind of startling yet curious amusement. By the time we get to verse 29, from 23 to 29, there moves from a curious amusement like, who are you? To raging hate. And the question for the thoughtful reader and listener for you this morning is, how did we move from a curious amusement to incendiary hate for Jesus? But Luke tells us. He tells us in two ways. First of all, you'll notice in the text, they push back a bit. Basically what they say, if I may translate it in a more common vernacular, is who do you think you are? <laughs> we know your family. You're, you're the carpenter. You're a hometown boy. We know you're getting a lot of press, but you're still one of us. So who do you think you are? Now the gospel writer Mark in chapter 6 gives us more insight. You want to hear it? Here's where it is. Mark tells us, on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, same kind of word, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? He's healing people. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not these sisters here with us? And they were ticked at him. That's the idea. They were PO'd. Can I use that language here? They were really at. They were like, ah. But it moves beyond that. So Luke and Mark give us this pushback, and there's a major pushback. But it moves to wanting to kill him. What happens? The next section of text is a bit more abstract and needs more cultural translations. Let me just highlight it quickly. It goes back to the Old Testament. Jesus points out a couple examples during the prophet time of Elijah and Elisha. He points to people outside the common hip people in Israel, the outsiders. A widow who is not a part of Israel, who God heals and ministers to and cares for through the prophet Elijah. Then the thing that just blows their stack is he points out in their Old Testament text a guy named Naaman. It's not, you know, probably having a devotional about Naaman in your breakfast recently. Naaman's an interesting character. He's actually a commander, a leader of a nation that hated Israel, enemies of Israel. And in the prophet Elijah and Elisha, Elisha particularly, this guy gets leprosy, a disease. And God instructs the prophet of Israel to go to this commander of an army that hates Israel, that's warring against Israel, and heal him and extend grace way outside the Jewish covenant. So can you imagine, here are very Jewish people, very religious people in a synagogue, and they are like, what do you mean? What about us? Why is God's favor in this year of Jubilee going outside of us? And they get really ticked off. There's no way that's what it should be. We're the inside people. Those people should not be included. That's the idea. But God chooses often the outsiders those who are deemed unworthy to be the recipients of his grace. This is the upside-down gospel, and it's powerful, right? So Jesus' words to his listeners have a scandalous grace to them. They are turning their self-righteousness upside down, and they are ticked. Notice how this section ends in a furious mob. 
They want to destroy him and push him off a cliff. This is Jesus' first sermon. I'm, again, this is my first sermon here. I'm just want to say, I hope you don't push me off a cliff, by the way. But notice also the first miracle Luke records is Jesus passing through the crowd like a warm knife through soft butter. His first miracle is around those who hate him and reject him. So here in this gospel, we are confronted, all of us, with a very inconvenient truth. And here it is. It is possible for you and me to encounter the real Jesus, to hear the good news, and reject it and reject him. To hear what Jesus claims and reject him. To realize who Jesus really is in our life, what he taught and hate him and all those who follow him for it. See, it's not just irreligious people who reject the real Jesus. In the scriptures, most of the people that reject him most are religious people. And this is true today, isn't it? Do you realize never before in the history of the church for 2,000 years, more followers of Jesus are beaten, raped, imprisoned, and killed simply because they name the name of Jesus, often in very religious countries. Now, maybe we won't be imprisoned, I trust, tortured, or killed for our faith in Jesus. But I can assure you, those who love and follow the real Jesus, as he's presented in the Holy Scriptures, will at times feel rejection. We will be scorned by others in our families, our friends, our coworkers, people who will ridicule us, resent, reject us for following the real Jesus and what he taught and how he lived. Jesus' teaching in regard to justice, his teaching in regard to sexual purity, Jesus doesn't stammer there. His teaching on generosity, forgiving others, loving the unloving, loving, lovely, loving even our enemies. This will bring pushback and rejection in our cultural context. You can be sure of it. But perhaps the most important question for us is how will we respond? Not just how others respond, but how we will respond. If we rediscover Jesus for who he is, I think many of us tend to view Jesus, don't we, as sort of safe, tame, cuddly. And Jesus is unimaginably gentle, unimaginably caring and loving and kind. But Jesus, if he's never made you uncomfortable, if he's never disturbed your night's sleep, if he's never got you angry, if he's never confronted you or me with a hard truth about himself, the life he calls us to live, that's made you want to walk away from him, there's a good chance you've never really encountered Jesus and really taken him seriously up close and personal. So I'd like to offer all of us a couple questions for reflection to tuck in our hearts and minds today and this week. A couple questions. First of all, do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? See, there's a world that differs between knowing about someone and knowing someone. There's a big difference between acquaintance and intimacy, right? Now, if I were to ask you, do you know Pastor Gabe? What would you say? Most of you probably would say, yeah, we know him. You know, uh, we know the food he likes. We know he's an aerobic machine. We know his kids, names, his wife. But if I were to ask Awesome Allie, do you know Gabe? She, she would have a different answer. She really knows Gabe. 
And one of the things, frankly, that scares me, y'all, is there's a way to read about Jesus and even really like Jesus a lot without ever truly knowing him and letting him change or transform us. We can be around Jesus and his people and his word without ever actually listening to him, without ever encountering him, without ever drawing near to his heart, and without following him in wholehearted devotion and tender love for him. See, the good news of the gospel is not just that we can intimately know him, but that he intimately knows us. It's not just about knowing Jesus. The scriptures talk about being known by him. Psychiatrist and author Dr. Kurt Thompson, who's coming to Christ Community and don't miss this, April 23rd, he's going to give a lecture and Q&A at the Lewa campus, brilliant writer and a friend, emphasizes this, he says, we have a deep longing to be known. And one of the books that he has written called The Soul of Shame, this is what he says, listen carefully, he says, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. The Apostle Paul, in that great poem of love, Think of how he ends it. He says, now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. See, the listeners to Jesus' first sermon knew about Jesus, but they were unwilling to truly know him and be known by him as their Savior and Lord and Messiah. Second question I want to raise is, do you love who Jesus loves? Do you really love who Jesus loves? It's been wisely observed that we can tell more about the authenticity of a person's faith, y'all, not by what they say they believe, but by, by what they truly love on Monday. See, when we embrace the gospel of the kingdom, our love changes. We begin to love who and what Jesus loves. And at times, we don't want to admit this to ourselves, do we? Let's be transparent. It's true, isn't it? Jesus loves people you and I do not love. Right? Henry, they're giving me an amen. Our culture is so adamant, think of this, that we don't hate anyone. We hear that we don't hide our hatred behind our nice words, like disagreement or dislike or distrust, something tame like that. But deep down, isn't it true? There's probably someone we really don't want to love. It could be a family member, it could be someone who's really hurt us in the past or present or wronged us. It could be another person who has a very different economic position in life, a different tax bracket, a different political persuasion. It could be a stereotypical group we are suspicious of. It may be the wealthy, the poor, immigrants, minorities, majorities, men, women, you name it. There's someone out there in your world, in my world, this week, that Jesus loves that you and I really wished he didn't. Yet when we rediscover Jesus, all that changes. We reach out to those very people. So let me ask you, if we grasp more fully the gospel Jesus invites us to embrace, how will we respond? Will you reject him or embrace him? Will you just know about Jesus or will you be deeply known by Jesus? Will you simply admire Jesus or obey him? Or will you love 
those who Jesus loves. Jesus' first sermon nearly killed him. That's the story of this text. But he willingly laid down his life for you and me, shedding his blood on a cross that you and I might be forgiven, given new life, and enjoy his kingdom reign now and, yes, ultimately forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the beauty and brilliance of the gospel of the kingdom. Holy Spirit, speak into each crevasse of our hearts and lives that we may apply the good news to our Monday life. In Jesus' name, amen.